Welcome to the Talking Points Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Schiller. We'll be joined by four analysts joining our program today. Let's kick off our coverage with Talking Points analyst Harrison Calder. He joins us now to talk about the rebellion group in Russia looking to protest Putin's war in Ukraine. Harrison, what is the latest? Russia has been at war with Ukraine, and we're starting to see more things pop back up. Wagner, a private military company, is believed to have Russian insiders in the form of General Sergei Sovokin. This has caused a lot of uproar, and we now see the army in Kyiv realign in order to stay protected in all areas. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky had the northern military strengthened as Evgeny Prigozhin, the leader of Wagner, was exiled there after being a large focal point of a mutiny. The threat of Russian attack is still looming large for Ukraine and could continue to pose similar threats. Vladimir Putin has recently started to crack down and set what's really happening with Wagner by completely reshaping the landscape of the group. This could not only put in newer and less experienced leadership, but also might divide troops, creating less of a unit willing to work together. The major changes to Wagner has certainly brought some new weak spots of the Russian military to the attention of many. These scenarios really show the tensions that have been shown for years between Russia and Ukraine, but also keep up the possibilities of more stuff happening that the general public is not aware of. The rebellion group caught a lot of attention and were just a few hours away from Moscow when they retreated. What can we expect to see next, even though it may be hard to predict here? So we've seen a lot from Wagner, especially in these past few days with all these situations going on. But I think we're going to get a huge and different look from Wagner. I think that they're going to bring a completely different style of how they work into their military uh, performances and how they do their overall jobs since what they've done in the past has clearly been a little schemy and maybe not what is up to par of what's expected from other nations at this period of time. Experts say this rebellion showed weakness against Putin and his administration. How so? A lot of people are bringing up points about how this mutiny has potentially weakened Russia and potentially weakened Putin, and I think in a lot of ways it has. Russia has always been a large country that's been able to work on threats and various things using power, and they really lose a lot of that ability here with all of these mutinies and showing the crumbling inside of their own country and causing a lot of in, in, inner military issues. So I think these conflicts have really shown a weaker side of Russia and might not give them the stance they're used to having. Could we see more rebellion groups protest Putin and his war in Ukraine? I think a lot of different things could happen with this war. I think Russia is just getting a little bit more angered and tired with all of this stuff going on. And now the internal conflicts bringing up more and more issues. And of course, Ukraine here just trying to get through, trying to make it through and just survive through this war to still stand and be the country that they are today. I don't think it will excel into anything more extreme, at least for the coming weeks and months. But there's definitely a lot of potential that Russia really decides that they want to put their foot down and they want to show off that power they've potentially been losing due to what's been going on. Talking Points analyst Harrison Calder, thank you. The next analyst I want to bring on our show today is Peter Barry. He is here to discuss the controversies on the Supreme Court, specifically Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas. Peter, what are the allegations these justices are facing? So first, let's start off with the controversy facing Justice Samuel Alito. Back in 2008, Justice Alito took a fishing trip to Alaska, and it was an all-expense-paid trip by entrepreneur Paul Singer. Paul Singer had his court case taken up in the court in 2014, where he f- took a stake in Argentinian government. But even though Samuel Alito took 
a say in this case. It was a 7-1 to one majority that voted in Singer's favor. There's been heavy criticism that Alito should have recused himself. The story ProPublica published criticized him for accepting gifts in a form of a free vacation from an individual with a case before the Supreme Court. And the controversy facing Justice Thomas, according to ProPublica, he received free trips and benefited financially from his relationship with Harlan Crow, a real estate entrepreneur. However, Harlan Crow never had a case of his own. He, there was real estate cases that benefited Harlan Crow, and Harlan Crow paid for a expensive vacation for Thomas and dished out money to Thomas's wife's foundation. However, these are all allegations against Justices Alito and Thomas, and that it isn't proven that they were influenced by these gifts, but it does put them on the defensive because they weren't publicly disclosed before ProPublica reported on them. If these allegations are deemed to be true, why are these gifts and trips considered to be illegal? After the Watergate scandal, politicians, and more importantly, Supreme Court justices for this matter, were required to report any lobbying in their financial disclosure forms. However, Justice Alito and Thomas failed to do so, which leaves them in hot water. Members of Congress, such as Democratic U.S. Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, are saying that Supreme Court justices should file disclosure forms, such as the ones required from members of Congress, and the Supreme Court believes they should follow their own rules and can police themselves effectively to avoid conflicts of interest. What are the consequences these justices are facing? Although it has never been done before, these justices could face impeachment if there is enough evidence to go against them. But the more plausible solution would be that they would have to put all the gifts they receive from outside sources on their financial disclosure forms. They'll also probably have to recuse themselves from a Supreme Court case if they know the person and if they were given gifts from them. How have the justices responded and have there been any other notable reactions to these allegations? Justice Alito beat ProPublica to the punch by sending in an auditorial to the Wall Street Journal to attempt to defend themselves from these allegations. They were questions sent by ProPublica, so he just answered them without sending it back to ProPublica. And Justice Thomas said Crow is a close friend, and that they've been friends for years, and that his gifts to Thomas' family did not have an effect on his Supreme Court rulings. There have been many attorneys and unnamed sources in the ProPublica article who have quote-unquote finger-wagged at the Supreme Court justices and said they should list the gifts slash trips exceeding $50 on their financial disclosure forms. However, the public is largely unaware of these controversies. According to an economist slash YouGov poll, 47% of the electorate really are unsure what they think of Justice Samuel Alito, even though he has spent nearly 20 years on the Supreme Court. However, in another poll from The Economist, 15% fully approve and 61% fully disapprove of Justice Alito taking trips and not disclosing them prior. 
Peter Barry, thank you. Our next analyst on the show today is Talking Points analyst Dominic Chapone. Dominic, thank you for coming on. Let's talk about our conversation on the Supreme Court, but let's focus on the latest rulings. Let's talk about the affirmative action decision. What was the outcome? And I see that SU also responded to the decision. So in a joint decision on Thursday, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that from now on, it is unconstitutional for a United States college or university to consider race as a factor in the admissions process. This overturns a precedent set of decades long, but most recently in a 2003 Supreme Court case called Grutter v. Bollinger, which involved the issue of race and whether it could be considered a factor in the admissions process. And the Supreme Court in 2003 decided that race-informed admissions process did not violate the Equal Protections Clause. Fast forward 20 years later here in 2023, and the Supreme Court in this joint decision has decided it does indeed violate the Equal Protections Clause of the 14th Amendment. This ruling was issued involving two cases, Students for Fair Admissions Incorporated versus Harvard College, and then the same group suing against the University of North Carolina. And they were accusing them of discriminating certain races over others, despite those that first group of races having better statistical numbers, GPAs, test scores, etc. So this obviously directly affects what's going to happen with Syracuse University's process for admission, the admission cycle. They have already released a email, a, a email statement on Thursday morning shortly after the decision was announced. It involved Chancellor Ken Severud, as well as several members of the SU administration, including Provost Gretchen Ritter and Chief Student Experience Officer uh, Alan Groves. And in that email, they said that they currently have a working group that is talking to different members of the Syracuse University community to acknowledge that the university will still have a commitment to diversity uh, and at, at the same time adhere to the ruling. And I want to read quickly a quote from that statement. Uh, this is from what Severud and the rest of the administration wrote on Thursday. It says, quote, today's decision is disappointing. However, in no way does it change Syracuse University's longstanding and demonstrated commitment to being a university that is inclusive and welcoming to all. I like to clarify also that I've spoken multiple times with these same administrators, including Provost Ritter uh, and Alan Groves. Both of them have also said they are committed to maintaining a diverse class while at the same time hearing, adhering to legal, legally permissible options for admission. So, for example, Syracuse University can still recruit people and accept them based off geography or socioeconomic status or different things along those lines as long as the factor is not race. The Student Association, which is the main student-run government on campus, also issued an email uh, calling for the university to maintain its commitment to recruiting a diverse and equitable admissions class for the next admissions cycle, while also acknowledging that there could be other steps to push forward on this, for example, keeping a long-term commitment to a test-optional policy. So with this decision just coming out, there's a lot in flux with Syracuse University and colleges and universities all across the country. So there'll be a lot to kind of sort out here over the next couple months. The affirmative action decision is the biggest case decided since last summer's Dobbs versus Jackson case when Roe v. Wade was overturned. The conservative supermajority continues to overturn cases. Break this down for us. Yes, Ben, I totally agree. For the second summer in a row, we have had the Supreme Court issue a decision on a very hot button issue 
that has now overturned decades worth of precedent. And obviously, this summer it was affirmative action, and last summer it was the Jackson v. Do- the Dobbs v. Jackson case, which overturned overturned the right to an abortion and allowed for states across the United States to impose restrictions on abortion access for women across the the U.S. Now. To make this clear, there is a pretty substantial difference when you look at these two issues. If you look at all the polling numbers out there, the New York Times released an article on Thursday right after the ruling. And they found out in this poll that a majority of Americans, over 50 percent, actually do not support affirmative action. And this is unique because if you look at the case with abortion and what the how the political tide has changed on that from the summer of 2022, a year later until now, a lot more people are of Americans are way more in uh, in favor of abortion rights and the right for a woman to choose. If you even just look at races, for example, with the Wisconsin uh, state Supreme Court judge to uh, state uh, amendments like in Kansas, which basically made sure that abortion was, in other words, they call it the abortion on the ballot. And we've seen that in recent elections that Americans are really highly in in favor of abortion rights, but they are not so much on affirmative action. Now, I do think what the affirmative action ruling does show is how much the court has tilted uh, to the right, especially with the Trump appointees like Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Comey Barrett, etc. Because as we're as when we're taping this on Friday, President Biden's loan forgiveness plan was also rejected by the Supreme Court on grounds of lack of constitutionality. So I think what we've seen is that there is definitely a a difference in the court's ideology uh, that has shaken out over the past couple of years. The Supreme Court also handed the Biden administration a huge loss over the rejection of its student loan forgiveness plan. Why did the Supreme Court deny a plan that could have impacted 43 million Americans? So on that loan forgiveness plan, I will say that legal scholars and Supreme Court junkies are reviewing this decision and the broader two cases of President Biden's loan forgiveness plan really, really tightly. And here's why. So President Biden in August announced a loan forgiveness plan that would cancel up to $400 million uh, in loan debt for Americans across the country. Here in Syracuse, we have a decent chunk of people who take out a loan of some kind. U.S. News and World Report ranking says that it's around 53% of graduating students who are now uh, graduating students who are now alumni take out a loan of some kind, especially as prices for colleges and universities and tuition specifically have increased exponentially across the board uh, in the past few decades. So the reason why this is interesting is that when President Biden issued this plan, he used kind of a a a little detail within the 2003 HEROES Act, which says that the Department of Education can authorize a change in, in plans, in other words, change of uh, uh, qualities and, and guidelines for financial aid if there is a national emergency declared. And if you recall, under the Trump administration reestablished by President Biden, the United States was under a national emer- emergency due to the, co- the COVID-19 pandemic. The Supreme Court ruled that that form of logic is not legit. And the reason why is what legal scholars have on their mind. And it's something that's been in the works the past year or so, going back to the shift in the court, and it's called the uh, major questions doctrine. What that doctrine has been, as legal scholars have put it, seen and in, in the influence of some of these decisions is that if Congress 
Congress needs to specifically outline authority for the president. In other words, if, if loan forgiveness in this case should be laws passed by Congress and signed by the president, but President Biden doesn't, in, in based off this decision, have that authority. So it's really a, a slap in the face for President Biden because he did call on uh, on one of his campaign promises was loan forgiveness and guaranteeing loan forgiveness for especially poor and lower income Americans. This is also a check on presidential power that we really haven't seen in, in quite a long time. Another case that has not been really talked about but has a huge impact is Moore versus Harper. Let's talk about that ruling's impact on the upcoming 2024 election. Yeah, Ben, similar to the cases that we've seen in this cycle and the decisions, the Moore v. Harper Supreme Court case was fascinating. In a 6-3 decision, they ruled that the independent state legislator theory is unconstitutional and doesn't exist. If you need a quick summary of what this theory is, uh, this bubbled up shortly after the 2020 election. And the logic behind this theory is that state legislators can uh, state Supreme Courts do not have the authority to overrule laws from states. And the states are justifying this as we are passing certain laws in order to promote free and fair elections. Proponents of that are saying that, again, it will ensure that democracy runs right. Critics are saying, so wait, if a state court is ruled illegitimate, states lawmakers can just pass laws willingly and not have a check on power. So this is interesting because this has been pushed by a lot of conservatives. And now that it's officially undermined, it was kind of one of the more shocking rulings, given how how conservative the court has gone again in the past few years. This was the the biggest, if you will, unusual ruling that for especially for the Democratic Party, this helps out a lot. Uh, but this also just keeps America's democratic elections and the way we've done things from here just completely intact. Talking points, analyst Dominic Chapone, thank you. Let's turn things over to the decision 2024. Talking points, analyst Noah Gutfledge breaks down the latest in the 2024 presidential campaign trail. Noah? June was an active month in the 2024 Republican primary. As we saw five candidates declare, with significant action from President Trump being indicted for mishandling documents. As for the candidates that declared, all of them are distinctly different from each other and from the other candidates in the primary. First is former President Mike Pence. Pence is running on a fairly standard Republican prep platform, such as cutting taxes and regulations, promoting Christian values, and maintaining a strong defense. Pence is also the highest serving candidate besides his former boss, but has also taken a different position on democracy than many other candidates, and defended his position in starting fighting the 2020 presidential election, which has drawn ire from other candidates in the field. Shortly after Pence announced, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie entered. Christie has garnered attention for his constant and scathing attacks on Trump. Once being a close friend of Trump and actually being a finalist for his VP in 2016, Christie has now has soured on Trump, claiming that there was election fraud in 2020 and not announcing the Capitol insurrection. The next day, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum announced his candidacy. While Burgum has been kind of quiet and not very notable during his six and a half years as governor of North Dakota, he is a billionaire and has strong ties to the gas industry, which could potentially give him some influence in the primary. And then there's Francis Suarez, the mayor of Miami. He is considered a moderate or even liberal Republican, and he is also only Latino in the field. Suarez has been attacked from the right for his support of LGBT rights, opposition to the Don't Say Gay bill, and actually voting against fellow candidates Ron DeSantis in 2018 and Donald Trump both times. Suarez, however, claims now that he supports Trump and has taken a more conservative tone. 
Suarez was also in the news this week for not knowing what a Uyghur was and drawing criticism for that. And the final candidate to announce this month is former Representative Will Hurd of Texas. Hurd was known for being a bipartisan Republican who worked with Democrats on many issues such as immigration and frequently criticized Trump while he was in Congress. While these five did enter the race, only Christine Pence seemed to have any real support as Bergham, Hurd, and Suarez don't even get, in many polls, don't even garner 1%. Chris Christie is not doing much better, but he is at least on track to be able to participate in the debates, which was a goal of his campaign, and has actually even gotten as high as 9% in one New Hampshire primary poll. Pence consistently garners single digits, but is seen as, but is generally seen as a third-place candidate, and is competing with Hale, with Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, and Vivek Ramaswamy. While many of the while more candidates have entered, they have not shaken up the field so far, as Trump is still cur- is still comfortably in the mid-50s in polls, with DeSantis trailing by in the high teens to low 20s. However, there are two potential candidates who could throw their hats in the field in the ring in Florida Senator Rick Scott and Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. Scott was ahead of the NRSC this last cycle and challenged Mitch McConnell to be the GOP leader after the midterms. He also introduced a plan to sunset Medicare and Social Security, which faced heavy backlash. Scott is Scott's unsure about running as he would as he would not be able to run for re-election in the Senate for 2024. So he is which is why he is still considering and has not yet entered. Then Glenn Youngkin is the current governor of Virginia, who won in 2021 in the Blue Wing State. Youngkin's campaign was seen as a blueprint for Republicans as he ran as a conservative focus on kitchen table issues, which vaguely, while vaguely touching on the culture war, and thus did well with suburban voters, who, an event which helped cause his win. Duncan has also been, has also enacted some conservative policy, even with a split government in a blue-winning state, notably advocating for, par- for parental involvement in schools and school curriculums. If he, w- if he entered the race, he could potentially make an appeal to suburban voters who are maybe who are split between, we're not sure entirely who they're voting for right now. And and, poll, and polls have showed him doing very well in hypothetical matchups with Joe Biden. The Republican field right now is large and has a lot of unique candidates who have, who could hope to lead the nation. But, but regardless, President Trump has the strongest support and has the strongest support from his base and is still a front runner. But we really won't know who the can, but we really won't know, get to know the candidates that well until debates in August. Until then, we continue to watch. That's it for our coverage today. You can follow Talking Points on Twitter and Instagram at TalkingPointsTP and Citrus TV at Citrus TV News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Alongside the Talking Points crew, I am Benjamin Schiller.